Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. This week I'm going to kick off the news with an exciting news story about cancer research. Now, cancer is a disease that's caused by gene faults, both inherited from our parents and picked up during our lifetime as our DNA gets damaged. And increasingly, researchers are working out how to use these faults to our advantage to fight the disease. Now, this week, research from Professor Alan Ashworth and his team at the Institute for Cancer Research, this was funded by Cancer Research UK, has revealed another Achilles heel in cancer cells that we can try and target. Target, and they've just published their results in the journal Cancer Cell. So go on, Kat, tell us how it works. Well, this new research is based on the concept of synthetic lethality. Now, let's explain this a bit more. In our cells, we have multiple ways of doing the same thing, such as repairing our DNA, and this helps to protect us if something goes wrong. So it's a bit like having a pair of trousers with a belt and braces holding them up. So if your belt breaks, then the braces will still work to preserve your dignity. If you're an American listener, you may want to substitute pants and suspenders here. But, uh, but cancer cells have a lot of genetic faults, and in many cases, they're just relying on one mechanism to do something. So if we can figure out what they're dependent on and target it with drugs, so effectively to snip the braces, then that might be a good way to treat cancer. And is that what these researchers have done? Yes. Now, Professor Alan Ashworth and his team have been looking at cancer cells with faults in specific genes involved in repairing damaged DNA. These are genes called MLH1 and MSH2. And faults in these genes have been found in a number of different cancers, including bowel cancer. And faults in either of these genes mean that cells tend to accumulate DNA damage, and this helps to turn them cancerous. But other pathways in the cell, the metaphorical braces, are still compensating for this lack of MLH1 or MSH2 too, so the cancer still grows and spreads. And the researchers realised that molecules called DNA polymerases, these help to copy DNA when cells divide, they were also repairing DNA and compensating. So the researchers used a technique called RNAi, uh, RNA interference, to knock out certain DNA polymerases in cancer cells. And they found that knocking out a polymerase called POLB could kill cells that didn't have MSH2, and targeting another polymerase called POLG could kill cells without MLH1. So what's next then? Because one of the key things about cancer is, of course, it's a very heterogeneous disease, isn't it? We don't just talk about having a cancer. There are many different types of cancers, and in one person with one cancer, the cell types are very, very varied in those cancers. Exactly, and um, we're starting now to look more at the faulty pathways in a in a cancer rather than just the overall type of cancer. So rather saying, oh, you have bowel cancer and we treat it this way or breast cancer and we treat it this way. You say you have a cancer that's deficient or defective in X gene. Now we know that this kind of approach already works to treat cancer and we're starting to see some very promising results from early clinical trials of new cancer drugs called PARP inhibitors. And so at the moment the technique the researchers use to uh, block POLB or POLG isn't really transferable to patients. Um, but scientists now really need to design drugs that could block these polymerases. And uh, although that's way away it's it's a really promising approach i think it's pretty exciting news indeed well given how many people suffer from cancer anything we can do to make the problem better uh, or more amenable to, to therapy the better now here's an interesting story cat because you're well across the idea of fingerprinting people have been fingerprinting crime scenes for 
Well over 100 years. I think the first recorded documented use of fingerprints to track someone down was in France about 1900 or so. But what about your bacterial fingerprint? Scientists are saying this week there may be a new way to finger criminals by following the trail of microorganisms that they leave on things that they touch. Now, this is the work of Noah Fiera, who's a Colorado-based scientist. There's a paper in PNAS this week describing what they did. Their approach was to say, well, human beings are festooned with bacteria. In fact, some people have gone as far as to say we're passengers in our own bodies because there are roughly 50 times as many microbial cells on us and in us as there are cells in our whole body. So we're carrying around all these bacteria, and what's really amazing is that the profile of those bacteria, the number of different species, how many of each of the different species, is almost as unique to each of us as our fingerprint. And so what the researchers are saying is that when people touch things, they will leave their own bacterial fingerprint on it. Could we therefore, by looking at what bacteria are there, identify who they are? And to to prove the point, they went to a laboratory and they swabbed initially some computer keyboards and then they did the study on computer mice and they extracted genetic sequences from the bacteria on those keyboards because every time you just type something, the bacteria on your fingers are being transferred onto the keyboard and they're there for the next person to pick up or scientists with swabs. Same story with computer mice. They were then able to go to a cross-section of, say, 250 random pairs of hands, including some people who had used those keyboards and, and computer mices, and they were able to say who owned the computer and who had been touching the mouse. So this is pretty amazing when you think that rather than having to do it the old traditional way, you can use bacteria as a proxy for who we've been with, where we've been, and what we've been touching. So who knows, maybe in the future forensics will also be looking to bacteria to tell tales on people rather than just their own fingerprints. But what happens if you have lots of people touching the same thing? You just get a massive, massive mess of different bacteria. How can you sort that out? Well, that problem really is the same uh, that you experience with genetic fingerprinting techniques right now, which is if you go to a crime scene and you collect some DNA from a crime scene, then anyone who's been to that crime scene could potentially have contaminated it with their DNA. And this is the problem researchers face at the moment. They've got to disentangle the crime scene signature caused by the criminal from incidental people who just happened to be there and had nothing to do with it. And that's a big problem. The researchers aren't saying this would replace that technology. They're saying it would be an adjunct to it because it's much easier to get the bacteria off a surface because they're much more stable than, say, some DNA that someone may or may not have left behind. So it could be used to help rather than replace existing uh, forensic techniques. Interesting. So always wash your hands if you're going to burgle someone. Anyway, in my uh, earlier news story, I explained how researchers used a powerful technique called RNAi, or RNA interference, to switch off those DNA polymerases in cancer cells growing in the lab. Now, this technique's been used to switch off genes in cells and in small organisms like worms and fruit flies. But until now, we haven't really shown that it can work in humans. It's really been a technique that's been restricted to lab research. But now, Mark Davis Davis and his colleagues in the US have published some research in the journal Nature showing the first inklings that we might be able to get this technique to work in patients. Well, you better start by first of all telling us actually what this RNAi is for, for the uninformed. Well, RNAi stands for RNA interference, as I said, and when a gene is switched on, it produces a little message in the form of RNA. Now, that's a chemical that's similar to DNA. And this RNA message then goes into the rest of the cell, where it's read by the cell's protein factories, and the appropriate protein is produced. It's a bit like copying a recipe out on a piece of paper, then taking that 
piece of paper into the kitchen to bake a cake rather than taking out the whole recipe book. Now, researchers discovered that short reverse stretches of RNA could effectively silence these RNA messages and individually switch specific genes off. Now, it's an incredibly powerful technique that helps researchers to switch genes on and off in the lab, as we heard in my earlier story, but it's not been clear whether it actually works in larger animals, for example, humans. And does it? Well, in this new research, uh, the scientists were running a small-scale clinical trial to test RNAi in patients with cancer, and they were using tiny nanoparticles to deliver the RNA to the tumours. Now, for reasons that we don't really understand, nanoparticles seem to love going into tumours, so it's quite a good way of delivering this stuff. And the scientists discovered that the nanoparticles had effectively delivered their RNA payload into the cancer cells, and it was working as expected. The specific gene they were targeting a gene called RRM2, was getting switched off. Which sounds pretty impressive. Is this, therefore, a viable next-generation treatment for cancer? Uh, Not quite yet, unfortunately. This is a very small-scale, very early trial, and in this paper, the researchers do only present data from three patients, all of whom had melanoma, that's a type of skin cancer. Now, we don't know from this data whether the RNAi actually helped to treat their cancer. All we know is that it was working Uh, as expected. It was helping to switch off the gene they were targeting. So it's a really impressive demonstration that this technique can work in humans and it certainly bodes well and is very exciting for future research and hopefully future treatments based on this kind of technology. We're talking about technology informing future treatments. How about the idea of turning mosquitoes, a species that's universally acknowledged as probably the most dangerous species on earth because they cause millions quite literally of deadly diseases like malaria and dengue and yellow fever well a group of researchers in japan have said well why don't we use mosquitoes and turn bad into good and make them into flying vaccines what they've done is to insert genes into the mosquito salivary gland so that every time the mosquito bites because it injects some of its saliva which it uses as an anticoagulant and also uh, to prevent the immune system from attacking the mosquito's mouthparts when it's drinking blood. If the mosquito is genetically modified to add various other things with its saliva, it can work like a vaccine. And what they've done as a test and proof of principle is to add a a small protein called SP15, which is essential for Leishmania, another parasite, to infect and spread in in a human. And in tests on mice, what this group of researchers who are based in Japan, this is Shigeto Yoshida at uh, Yichi, that's Yichi as opposed to Ichi, have found is that mice who are exposed to these mosquitoes build up immunity to this protein which is in their saliva, and this can protect them, other researchers have shown, against Leishmania. There are some ethical considerations. Not everyone would like a mosquito buzzing around that's vaccinating them against things without any control. But on the other hand, it is an important proof of principle and it might be possible with certain diseases, maybe also by modifying other mosquitoes that don't necessarily target humans to control certain diseases that way. Oh, I don't fancy being bitten on purpose. Anyway, also in the news this week, scientists have discovered a new molecule that can block the build-up in the brain of beta amyloid. This is the toxic protein that causes Alzheimer's disease. But rather than working on human subjects, uh, Dr Leila Luheshi, who's based at the genetics department here at the University of Cambridge, made the discovery using fruit flies that were genetically engineered to develop the insect equivalent of Alzheimer's disease. Mira Senthalingam went along to meet her to find out more. 
So it turns out if you'd like to study Alzheimer's disease, really you need to have some sort of model of the disease in you know, an organism other than humans, which you can kind of you know, try out new treatments on and you know, uh, test some new and rather crazy ideas. And it turns out Drosophila are very good for this. Actually, they have quite complicated brains, a lot of the same genes that there are in humans. And also, yeah, they have very short lifespans, so we can test lots of different treatments very rapidly in them. It turns out that we can give them something like Alzheimer's disease and then go and try and, try and find different ways of curing it. So how do you set about giving them Alzheimer's disease? So we take the gene that uh, encodes for the protein that seems to be important in causing Alzheimer's disease in humans, and we introduce it into our fruit flies. And then when that gene is uh, expressed in the brain, then uh, this protein, which is called amyloid, clumps together in the brains of our fruit flies, just like it does in the brains of humans with Alzheimer's disease. And then the fruit flies, you know, their brain starts to degenerate, and we, get, you know, we can see that they can't move properly, they die much sooner, and they, their memory is impaired as well, just like people with Alzheimer's disease. So is it the case where all people that have the gene will develop Alzheimer's? No, so actually the amyloid protein that uh, damages the brain in Alzheimer's disease is present in all of us. But under normal circumstances, it's present in small enough quantities and in a form which doesn't seem to cause us any problems. In fact, what seems to happen in, the patient, in patients with Alzheimer's disease, most patients with Alzheimer's disease, is that you produce a little bit more maybe of a slightly stickier than usual version of this protein that starts to stick together in the brain and then that starts to damage the neurons. So having given these flies Alzheimer's, um, you've set about finding a new molecule that should hopefully treat Alzheimer's in these flies and hopefully in humans. Yes, so what we thought was, well, if we know there's a, a protein, this protein called amyloid, which clumps together in the brains, then if we can prevent this protein from clumping together, then yeah, hopefully the cells in the brain won't die anymore. And so what uh, our colleagues in Sweden did was they designed a new molecule, which is called an afibody, which binds to this amyloid protein that's important in Alzheimer's disease and prevents it from clumping together. And they first tested this in a test tube, and they found that this is very effective. And then they came to us and said, well, you know, can you test this in your fruit fly model of Alzheimer's disease? And when we put this new mo molecule, this afibody, into the brains of our fruit flies with Alzheimer's disease, we found that essentially the fruit flies were cured of the Alzheimer's disease. And in fact, the protein which clumped together, this amyloid protein, was now completely cleared from the brain. How was this afibody created? It's based on a protein that is found naturally inside bacteria. And what our colleagues in Sweden did was they made mutations in this protein. They, they screened thousands, in fact, millions of different mutations in this protein until they found a mutant form of this protein that bound very specifically to the amyloid protein that's important in Alzheimer's disease. And how did you set about putting this afibody into the Drosophila then as well? So we essentially did the same thing that we did to make our model of Alzheimer's disease in the first place. We made a gene for this afibody protein and we put the gene into the brain of our fruit fly and then that gene expresses the afibody protein. So then we have one fruit fly that expresses the afibody, one fruit fly that has Alzheimer's disease and when we breed those two fruit flies together, their offspring, their children, have both proteins. They have the Alzheimer's-related protein and they also have the afibody. And then we could see that when you had those two proteins together, the flies didn't get Alzheimer's disease anymore. So it's not the case where the fly had Alzheimer's and then you gave it this protein and it actually treated the Alzheimer's it had had previously? No. So right now we have to do it with both proteins there from the beginning together. So we prevent uh, the amyloid protein that's important in Alzheimer's disease from ever clumping together. But what we would like to do in the future is to make our flies so that they actually develop Alzheimer's disease. So we let the protein you know, stick together in the brains of the flies and then put in 
our antibody protein afterwards and see if we can you know, either halt the symptoms or reverse them, but we haven't done that experiment yet. First of all, we have to go through some, some more tests in more, slightly more complicated models of Alzheimer's disease than our fruit fly to see if really this kind of uh, protein, for instance, if we inject it into the bloodstream, can even get into the brain because it's got to be able to get to the brain, really, we think, to have any effect. And so we're still some way off seeing whether this kind of therapy would ever work in, in humans, but at least in principle we know that if we can clear this amyloid protein from the brain, that it might help the Alzheimer's patients, assuming we get to them early enough in the disease. That was Leila Luheshi from the Department of Genetics at the University of Cambridge talking to Mira Senthalingam there about work she's just published in the journal PLOS Biology. The Naked Scientist Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.